Hello, and welcome to the Gothic Banana Podcast, Episode 3, The Murdered Cousin. The Murdered Cousin, in which poor young Lady Margaret is sent to stay with her uncle and his unsavoury offspring. Plus, not one, but two locked room mysteries. First, just to let you know that we've changed slightly the format of the podcast. In previous episodes, we've spent the first half talking about the original story and in the second half presented original pieces of writing based on same. Uh, From now on, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of do that over two episodes. In other words, this episode, we're going to look at the story, The Murdered Cousin by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. And in the next episode, episode four, we will present our original adaptations. I'm delighted once more to be joined by Frightwick Theatre, Izzy Major and Craig Sinclair. Hi. Thank you for having us, Brian. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. We're not joined this time by Sarah Gould. Sarah is not here. She's somewhere else. But we send her our love, affection and some cuddles to. Sarah, we love you. So this day we're looking at The Murdered Cousin by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu, originally published in that title, or with that title, in 1851. But the story is older than that. It was originally published in 1838 under the title A Passage in the Secret History of an Irish Countess. This story fits into a classic subgenre of Gothic and indeed of detective fiction in the 19th century. That subgenre is what's known as the locked room mystery. Because this was published in 1838, a number of commentators have stated that this is probably the first example of that subgenre. So to explain what that is, I'm going to hand over to Craig. So the locked room mystery is a sort of subgenre of crime or detective fiction in which the entrance and exit of a crime scene, usually where a murder has taken place, is locked. Therefore, it is almost impossible to determine how the intruder could have entered or exited the property. I've got in front of me some examples. Uh, 1841, Edgar Allan Poe, The Murders in the Rue Morgue is a big one. The Mystery of the Yellow Room by Gaston Leroux is another one. And there are several examples in Sherlock Holmes of this same subgenre. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody that this has been a very influential subgenre in detective stories and mysteries ever since. Izzy, what did you make of it all? The locked room mystery. Well, I have to say, I am very immersed in the horror of everyday reality. And so it immediately made me think about the Jeremy Bamber case, actually, that I became quite obsessed with as a teenager in which his sister was murdered and her children. And again, it was a kind of this idea that the imposter came through the window, but actually the window was locked and he was kind of the only person in the house. But there was a big kind of campaign for his innocence in a double page spread of the Sunday Times that I read on the slow afternoon as a 16 year old. And yeah, got a little bit distracted with when I should have been paying attention to my college drama studies. There's something delicious about the locked room mystery because it's a puzzle to be solved, even more so than your average murder mystery uh, or detective story, I think. And that's why it endures so much. In fact, the locked room mystery has a bit of local relevance around here in that there was a case in Anfield 
in the early 1900s where a woman was murdered at home and had been said to be visited by a man from the Prudential Insurance Company. And it's known as the man from the Prue murder. But there was a case wherein there was a locked room and the husband was implicated and later exonerated. I became aware when researching this story that there was such a thing as what was called a Newgate novel, which was sort of very popular in the 1820s through the 1840s. And they were actually fictionalised or semi-fictionalised versions of true crime stories, almost like a Netflix series. And it seems as if Lefanu may have been influenced by this genre. He doesn't follow the genre in the sense that he doesn't follow an exact biographical tale of a murder of yore. Yeah, so the Newgate novel seems a sort of a very influential approach to writing stories. I mean... Why were they called Newgate novels of interest? At the time, there were publications of the facts surrounding certain crimes. And Newgate was the, was the title of the factual publications that these writers drew from. So then they became known as Newgate novels. And yeah, a lot of people were very critical of them just, you know, obviously for promoting criminal activity. And there are examples, uh, I don't have them to hand, but I know that there were examples of copycat crimes. Some said were inspired by the reading of these novels. So, you know, it, it seems as if this period of writing is very influential, you know, right up to the present day. I would have thought. Yeah, there was a big boom of um, copycat serial killer movies in the mid 90s. I think 1996 was around then, was the film Copycat with Sigourney Weaver. And there was the film California with Brad Pitt and David Duchovny, in which they were investigating copycat crimes. Yeah, I suppose that the 19th century is the time where genres open up quite a lot. As the first piece of fiction of this subgenre, it's a little rougher in places, I'd say, than some of the later work, which is inevitable. There's quite a big preamble or exposition section to the story where the main character, Lady Margaret, the heiress, is describing her uncle and she's describing an act of murder that took place in his house, which remains unsolved. So will we listen to that extract? As read by myself, go from there. The servant knocked at Mr. Tisdall's bedroom door repeatedly, received no answer, and upon attempting to enter, found that it was locked. This appeared suspicious, and the inmates of the house having been alarmed, the door was forced open, and on proceeding to the bed, they found the body of its occupant perfectly lifeless, and hanging halfway out, the head downwards and near the floor. One deep wound had been inflicted upon the temple, apparently with some blunt instrument, which had penetrated the brain. Another blow, less effective, and probably the first aimed, had grazed his head, removing some of the scalp. The door had been double-locked upon the inside, in evidence of which the key still lay where it had been placed in the lock. The window, though not secured on the interior, was closed, a circumstance not a little puzzling, as it afforded the only other mode of escape from the room. The room was also upon the second story, and the height of the window considerable. In addition to this, the stone window sill was much too narrow to allow of anyone standing upon it when the window was closed. Near the bed were found a pair of razors belonging to the murdered man, one of them upon the ground and both of them open. The weapon 
which inflicted the mortal wound was not to be found in the room, nor were any footsteps or other traces of the murderer discoverable. The coroner was instantly summoned to attend, and an inquest was held. Nothing, however, in any degree conclusive, was elicited. The walls, ceiling, and floor of the room were carefully examined, in order to ascertain whether they contained a trap door or other concealed mode of entrance. But no such thing appeared. Such was the minuteness of investigation employed, that although the grate had contained a large fire during the night, they proceeded to examine even the very chimney, in order to discover whether escape by it were possible. But this attempt, too, was fruitless, for the chimney, built in the old fashion, rose in a perfectly perpendicular line from the hearth to a height of nearly 14 feet above the roof, affording, in its interior, scarcely the possibility of ascent, the flue being smoothly plastered and sloping towards the top like an inverted funnel. The ashes, too, which lay in the grate, and the soot, as far as it could be seen, were undisturbed, a circumstance almost conclusive upon the point. struck me there brian was was how the room itself becomes a character in the story in a locked room mystery so often the fact that the room has become a crime scene but not only that and a sort of impossible crime scene means that every aspect of the room must be methodically interpreted and investigated and although it's not very economical in the writing there from lefanu mm. it does really delve into that concept of the room or a location as a character. And I think that's great. Yeah. As we've discovered, the further back we go with Lefanu's writing, the more dense the writing actually is. And, it, it, you know, it, it's a tougher read than some of his later work for sure. But yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the notion of the walls have ears or that animistic sense of the building itself having an atmosphere and having a presence and having a sense of character, as you said, I think that's totally right. And the forensic way in which the writing investigates the crime scene. And and how much kind of forensics nowadays, um, how, you know, all this up-to-date stuff, how that kind of good mystery just kind of isn't quite the same anymore. And how in a story of this era, without the kind of scientific forensic knowledge that we have today, there's so much more superstition in how the room and the home would be treated. And it made me think, actually, I don't know if you've read The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. How you pronounce it, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. It was in that book that I found this amazing description of how an investigator used to look inside the eye of the victim. And when they were investigating it forensically, they would take the eye apart because they believed that somehow in the anatomy of the eye, there might be a little snapshot picture of the murderer. So just when you were talking about the kind of room being treated in this way, it just made me think about how, because of all the science we have now, things just wouldn't be picked apart in that way. But I really remember that description of the eyeball and yeah. thinking, wow. 
I think people were a lot more open to the supernatural and superstition and much more reticent to apply forensics to things than you know they are now because we've made huge advancements and that makes for it makes for a more interesting time in terms of storytelling much in the same way that the mobile phone has kind of ruined horror films or ruined mm. peril in any kind of film kind of our advancement of knowledge and our philosophical advancement great though it is has kind of ruined the suspension of disbelief mm. slightly there's always been a very uneven sort of relationship between the supernatural and technology you know i think that's that's right up to the present day i suppose a female hero in gothic the character of lady margaret is an heiress whose father passes away and in an act of solidarity with his brother sir arthur tyrrell he decides that it will be a really really good idea to put her under the care of this guy who's possibly got away with a murder in the Victorian era, of course, a female heiress under the care of an uncle who stands to inherit all of her fortune if something were to happen to her. This is a theme that comes up in a number of stories in this era. But there's a very interesting gender theme running throughout this. Maybe we'll have a listen to the next extract. Craig, do you want to introduce the next extract? Yeah, so this is an extract from the scene where the grotesque cousin proposes marriage to the protagonist, Lady Margaret, and he does so in a very loquacious manner, which is also typical of the time in presuming that women are silly, sort of intellectually inadvanced creatures who will believe any old nonsense that you sell them. And of course, the reason he's proposing to her is because she's worth a fortune and he's not. And she's sort of stuck in a country mansion and hasn't got much choice but to listen to him. But it's pretty transparent from his disgusting proposal. Okay, let's have a listen to um, Edward Tyrrell, cousin of Lady Margaret, weaving his charms. Your servant, ladies, he said, seating himself at the same time. Sorry to spoil your tete-a-tete, but never mind. I'll only take Emily's place for a minute or two, and then we part for a while, fair cousin. Emily, my father wants you in the corner turret. No shilly-shally, he's in a hurry. She hesitated. Be off. Tramp, march, I say! He exclaimed in a tone which the poor girl dared not disobey. She left the room and Edward followed her to the door. He stood there for a minute or two, as if reflecting what he should say, perhaps satisfying himself that no one was within hearing in the hall. At length he turned about, having closed the door as if carelessly with his foot and advancing slowly in deep thought, he took his seat at the side of the table opposite to mine. There was a brief interval of silence, after which he said... I imagine that you have a shrewd suspicion of the object of my early visit, but I suppose I must go into particulars, must I? I have no conception, I replied, what your object may be. Well, well, said he, becoming more at his ease as he proceeded. It may be told in a few words. You know that it is totally impossible, quite out of the question, that an off-hand young fellow like me 
and a good-looking girl like yourself could meet continually, as you and I have done, without an attachment, a liking growing up on one side or other. In short, I think I have let you know as plainly as if I spoke it that I have been in love with you almost from the first time I saw you. He paused, but I was too much horrified to speak. He interpreted my silence favourably. <laughs> I can tell you, he continued, I'm reckoned rather hard to please and very hard to hit. I can't say when I was taken with a girl before. So you see, fortune reserved me. Here the odious wretch actually put his arm round my waist. Mm. The action at once restored me to utterance, and with the most indignant vehemence I released myself from his hold and at the same time said, I have, sir, of course, perceived your most disagreeable attentions. They have long been a source of great annoyance to me, and you must be aware that I have marked my disapprobation, my disgust, as unequivocally as I possibly could without actual indelicacy. I paused, almost out of breath from the rapidity from which I had spoken, and without giving him time to renew the conversation, I hastily quitted the room, leaving him in a paroxysm of rage and mortification. As I ascended the stairs, I heard him open the parlour door with violence and take two or three rapid strides in the direction at which I was moving. I was now much frightened and ran the whole way until I reached my room and having locked the door, I listened breathlessly but heard no sound. That was decidedly creepy. Yeah, he's an absolute lech, isn't he? A very unpleasant character. I suppose what Lefanu is, is doing very interestingly in this section, though, is he's really getting across the vulnerability of the young woman who, as we said before, is, is an heiress, but under the protection of a dubious uncle who has a very, very lecherous or amoral son who could be a future husband of hers if she's not careful. The fact that when she is kind of stringing together her confrontation to kind of really get him to stop. She's still very distracted with this idea of being indelicate. Like, you know, I couldn't possibly have, have said what I really thought without putting it indelicately. And it's almost like that is the absolute worst thing she could possibly do would be to kind of come across as being kind of too stern or not delicate of his feelings, which of course she ends up having to kind of break that pact with herself because he's actually literally kind of touching her and, you know, almost kind of grabbing her by putting his hand around her waist, which she's clearly disgusted with. Yeah, it's quite timely the way it's written. It positions her as the heroine and that it's from her viewpoint that mm. we're hearing all this and it's sort of atypical of the time that she's not, you know, she's not just some silly hysterical woman. She does have agency. It's just that the sort of social clauses of the time dictate that she has to behave a certain way in order to spare some pig man's feelings. Yeah, because, I mean, she's open to accusation of being unladylike, whatever that means, by speaking her mind. So, you know, this whole idea of actually speaking her mind and standing up for herself is a last resort and sort of an undignified thing that she doesn't want to do. One thing I suppose that's probably interesting based on what you're, you're saying about the heroine as well, Craig, is 
the whole idea that you know this isn't melodrama where the woman is is a damsel in distress who needs to be rescued by a guy with a sword. I suppose one thing that I really like about Lefanu's work, and it's, it's not just in this one, is that the female characters are often in very vulnerable positions, but they're actually quite formidable in spite of all this and quite capable of taking action to protect themselves rather than waiting for a man to do it for them. Absolutely. And another element of this story, which is slightly unusual for the time in the way it positions the heroine, is that she finds a real confident, a confidant in her cousin, Emily, who she forms the first real kind of serious relationship she's ever had with anyone mm. uh, in her life. Having been with a father who is slightly cold and doesn't really allow her to have any agency or an inner life. And then she finds when she comes to the house with these awful men, there is this cousin who offers some respite. And that to me seems quite unusual in that it gives two women a quite a serious relationship, as you say, rather than a melodramatic one or where they're just talking about men all the time. You know, it, it passes the Bechdel test. No, I think that's a spot on regarding the character of Emily because, I mean, she essentially, in terms of her duty, she should really be on the side of her brother and her father. But actually, the side she takes is the side of justice. So she's actually a really, really formidable character as well. And I suppose going through the whole kind of gothic canon, when you sort of think of Catherine from Wuthering Heights and character like Jane Eyre, for example, who, you know, again, are, are ladies, but are very strong-minded and very much of their own mind as such. So I think there's, um, there's a lot going on here in terms of gender politics that's really complex and really, really interesting. So... Lady Margaret has a lecherous cousin who wants to marry her. Well, that's bad news. But of course, she's got an uncle who's, you know, probably of very sound mind and has been very nice to her up to this point. So far, so good. So will we move on to the next extract, which is when Lady Margaret is summoned to a meeting with her uncle and protector, Sir Arthur Tyrrell. And this comes just after her very unpleasant encounter with her cousin, Edward. When I entered the room, he did not rise in his usual courteous way to greet me, but simply pointed to a chair opposite to his own, this boding nothing agreeable. I sat down, however, silently waiting until he should open the conversation. Lady Margaret, I have hitherto spoken to you as a friend, but I have not forgotten that I am also your guardian and that my authority as such gives me a right to control your conduct. I shall put a question to you, and I expect and will demand a plain, direct answer. Have I rightly been informed that you contemptuously rejected the suit and hand of my son Edward? I stammered forth with a good deal of trepidation. I believe, sir, th that is, I, I have, sir, rejected my cousin's proposals and my coldness and discouragement might have convinced him that I had determined to do so. Madam, I have lived long enough to know that coldness and discouragement and such terms form the common cant of a worthless coquette. You know to the full, as well as I, that coldness and discouragement may be so exhibited as to convince their object that he is neither distasteful nor indifferent to the person who wears that manner. You know, too, none better that an affected neglect, when skilfully managed, 
is amongst the most formidable of the allurements which artful beauty can employ. I tell you, madam, that having, without one word spoken in discouragement, committed my son's most marked attentions for a twelve-month or more, you have no right to dismiss him with no further explanation than demurely telling him that you had always looked coldly upon him, and neither your wealth nor your ladyship can warrant you in treating with contempt the affectionate regard of an honest heart. I was too much shocked at this undisguised attempt to bully me into an acquiescence in the interested and unprincipled plan for their own aggrandizement, which I now perceived my uncle and his son had deliberately formed, at once to find strength or collectedness to frame an answer to what he had said. At length I replied, with a firmness that surprised myself, "'In all that you have just said, sir,' You have grossly misstated my conduct and motives. Your information must have been most incorrect as far as it regards my conduct towards my cousin. My manner towards him could have conveyed nothing but dislike and, if anything, could have added to the strong aversion which I have long felt towards him. It would be his attempting thus to frighten me into marriage, which he knows to be revolting to me and which is sought by him only as a means for securing to himself whatever property is mine. As I said this, I fixed my eyes upon those of my uncle, but he was too old in the world's ways to falter beneath the gaze of more searching eyes than mine. He simply said, Are you acquainted with the provisions of your father's will? I answered in the affirmative. Then you must be aware that if my son Edward were, which God forbid, the unprincipled, reckless man, the ruffian you pretend to think him, if he were what you have described him, do you think, child, he would have found no shorter way than marriage to gain his ends? A single blow, an outrage, not a degree worse than you insinuate, would transfer your property to us. I stood staring at him for many minutes after he had ceased to speak, fascinated by the terrible serpent-like gaze, until he continued with a welcome change of countenance. I, I will not speak again to you upon this topic until one month has passed. You shall have time to consider the relative advantages of the two courses which are open to you. I should be sorry to hurry you to a decision. I am satisfied with having stated my feelings upon the subject and pointed out to you the path of duty. Remember this day, month, not one word sooner. He then rose and I left the room, much agitated and exhausted. That particular extract from the story struck us all when we read it because of its contemporary resonance. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely evident of this connection between the men just all being about making them and each other more powerful. Their relationship is just how can we make her weak and vulnerable and how can we kind of be in cahoots together to become more powerful, have more wealth and, yeah, just the complete abuse 
really of the vulnerable woman in this position and of course it yet yeah, so relevant it rings so true of you know men who you may have heard about in the news having a little bit of a secrecy pact of you know we'll kind of look after each other we're completely abusing this female to just make each other stronger and kind of egg on each other's predatory nature and almost kind of trying to convince the woman that actually it's fine that that they're predators you know it's you'd be lucky to have a predator like this and actually if you don't think you're lucky then I'm going to add an extra threat but it's really strange the threat of the month you know you have one month to change your mind about this I thought that was a really strange angle like what's meant to happen for her in that month and that kind of he's taking a vow of silence almost I thought that was really strange well also he asserts that if you don't want to marry my son you must be a worthless coquette you know you're just a a flirt or you know a prick tease yeah there's a whole farcical element to the power at work here as you definitely stated there is he in the previous extract it's obvious that women are not encouraged to speak their mind per se but in this one because she's silent She's a coquette. So these levels of hypocrisy are brilliantly drawn out. But also, she does try to spare his feelings, the cousin. She doesn't say, oh, you're a disgusting pig, get away from me. She still tries to generally, you know, put it quite plainly, but doesn't insult him at all. But it's the idea that a man's pride could be hurt so much by such plain speaking or by a woman not finding any interest. I think we can imagine that both these men are total kind of outsiders already as well, that they have their kind of strained relationship with one another. But you get a sense from the descriptions of them both and just from their kind of, I don't know, their their vibe or the behaviour, that they are just kind of living on the outskirts. Well, they're not a pair of Mr. Darcy's, are they? You know, for me, it was very much the sense of power. I was reminded while reading this section last year, I read Ronan Farrow's account of his investigations into the behavior of a certain Hollywood producer and situations of young women ending up feeling obliged to have solitary meetings with a much older and much more powerful man who is looking for something in return. And yeah, this is a sort of unpleasant power transaction where, you know, if you don't do what I say, then it's going to possibly end your career. Well, that's the modern version. But in the version in this story is if you don't do what I say, you're probably going to get pushed down the stairs or thrown out the window and there'll be nobody there to help you. I think there's a lot in this story that definitely speaks to our um, our modern sensibility. It is absolutely very prescient in today's climate, I think. One other extract from the story that we all were very taken with was the scene where Lady Margaret and her dear cousin Emily decide to go off for a little walk. And halfway down the path, they realize they've forgotten their coloring pencils and paper. So Lady Margaret goes back to her room, which will later become a locked room to gather the articles for their drawing trip. Before we listen to the extract, it's probably worth mentioning a minor but significant character in the story, which is the French governess. In the first part of the story, Lady Margaret has an Irish governess, who of course is lovely, but typical of the Gothic genre, it's time to get a foreigner in for a sense of evil. So this really dubious French lady emerges who becomes her new governess and who clearly is in cahoots with the lads. You'll be delighted to know that the part of the French governess in this forthcoming extract is played by the one and only 
Craig Sinclair. As I ran up the stairs, I was met by the tall, ill-looking Frenchwoman, evidently a good deal flurried. Give me that said she with a more decided effort to be polite than I had ever known her to make before. No, no, no matter, said I, hastily running by her in the direction of my room. Madame! cried she in a high key. Restez ici, s'il vous plaît. Votre chambre n'est pas faite. I continued to move on without heeding her. She was some way behind me and feeling that she could not otherwise prevent my entrance, for I was now upon the very lobby. She made a desperate attempt to seize hold of my person. She succeeded in grasping the end of my shawl, which she drew from my shoulders, but slipping at the same time upon the polished oak floor, she fell at full length upon the boards. A little frightened, as well as angry at the rudeness of this strange woman, I hastily pushed open the door of my room, at which I now stood in order to escape from her. But great was my amazement on entering to find the apartment preoccupied. The window was open, and beside it stood two male figures. They appeared to be examining the fastenings of the casement, and their backs were turned towards the door. One of them was my uncle. They both had turned on my entrance as if startled. The stranger was booted and cloaked, and wore a heavy, broad-leafed hat over his brows. He turned but for a moment and averted his face, but I had seen enough to convince me that he was no other than my cousin Edward. My uncle had some iron instrument in his hand, which he hastily concealed behind his back, and coming towards me said something as if in an explanatory tone, but I was too much shocked and confounded to understand what it might be. He said something about repairs, window frames, cold and safety, I did not wait, however, to ask or to receive explanations, but hastily left the room. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. I mean, <laughs> if there's one thing that this podcast is going to be known for, it's, it's the remarkable range of accents that its actors have performed. And what excellent French pronunciation. I didn't realise you were a aficionado of the language, Craig. Well done. Thank you. Well, Brian, you told me a long time ago to diversify. And so that's what I've done. So it's my fault. Thank you. <laughs> I tried to stop him, Brian. I tried to stop him. I, I actually had practised that part. You know, I had it all down. It was perfect pronunciation, but he just could not not be included in my extract, could you? I got a box set of Hello, Hello, and that's what, that's what really did it. I absolutely love this extract because it sort of taps into a, maybe a primal fear that we all have that you know when you leave a shared environment and close the door of your room that people actually go in there and have a nose about I don't know is that just me no somebody... definitely and not only people but hooded people people cloaked and hooded and you know these kind of shadowy figures who you can't quite make out and you don't quite know what they're doing in there but you know it's a complete invasion of privacy and that there's some kind of ill doing going on but yeah I think that's definitely something you imagine especially when you walk back into a room and think oh has someone been in here has anyone been there but thankfully I haven't ever discovered two men like this kind of lurking well about my bed not only are they rummaging around you know looking for sort of weaknesses they're planning her murder never mind looking through her drawer for Anne Summers toys the reader and I'm sure Lady Margaret herself has definitely made the connection between these two boys investigating the window 
and the first extract that we listened to, which was the previous unsolved murder. There's just something incredibly intrusive about the idea of someone. It's, it's like having a landlord who has sort of whatever they feel like it. They just invade your rented accommodation without apology because it's really their house. You know, that, that's happened to me once like or twice. Like uh, Lexi Sale in The Young Ones. Yeah, well, that's proper surreal comedy. That's definitely tapping into our primal fears. But <laughs> I suppose that in, in, the, in the first extract that she did, which was the one where Edward proposes to Lady Margaret, she retires to the safety of her room. The room is no longer safe because as soon as she goes out the door, the boys are in there. So this is almost the moment where there is no safe space at all for Lady Margaret. And... In this moment in the story, it's so inevitable. It's so obvious. It's been so clearly signposted, yet it's still so satisfying to discover that your suspicions were absolutely correct all along. And these are wrongans who are, you know, planning to disassemble the window. And he has something that he conceals behind his back, an iron bar. It's it's, it's the... The joy of confirmation bias, basically, that all your suspicions have come true at once. One thing that struck me with that extract as well is that it's actually those little things that are often the most effective when we're dealing with tales of terror, because there's nothing supernatural about it. The idea that, you know, as soon as you leave your room and go for a walk, these guys are actually in there checking out your jewellery box and invading your space, that something really, really small like that is actually really, really significant and possibly more terrifying than anything else in the story. We have one final extract from the story, which is sort of the seal of completion because we began with the extract which describes the original locked room mystery, but the second locked room mystery that doesn't really come to pass is the attempted murder of Lady Margaret by Edward Tyrrell and his father, Arthur Tyrrell. This is typical of the genre and... Conan Doyle exploits this, the idea that we hear the mystery early in the story, but then we see it in practice later on and all becomes revealed. A little preamble is that what's happened is she's locked in from the outside. But what those outside don't know is that in her bed, asleep, is her cousin Emily, who has in solidarity agreed to keep her company for the night. So let's hear hear this extract, which is through the eyes of Lady Margaret. I had nearly completed my arrangements when I perceived the room suddenly darkened by the close approach of some shadowy object to the window. On turning my eyes in that direction, I observed at the top of the casement, as if suspended from above, first the feet, then the legs, then the body, and at length the whole figure of a man present itself. It was Edward Tyrrell. He appeared to be guiding his descent so as to bring his feet upon the centre of the stone block which occupied the lower part of the window. And having secured his footing upon this, he kneels down and began to gaze into the room. As the moon was gleaming into the chamber and the bed curtains were drawn, he was able to distinguish the bed itself and its contents. He appeared satisfied with his scrutiny, for he looked up and made a sign with his hand. He then applied his hands to the window frame, which must have been ingeniously contrived for the purpose, for with apparently no resistance, the whole frame, containing casement and all, slipped from its position in the wall, and was by him lowered into the room. 
The cold night wind waved the bed curtains and he paused for a moment. All was still again and he stepped in upon the floor of the room. He held in his hand what appeared to be a steel instrument shaped something like a long hammer. This he held rather behind him while with three long tiptoe strides he brought himself to the bedside. Who wants to deliver the spoiler? Izzy. God, it, I mean, it's so surprising, this bit, isn't it? I just didn't know what to make of it, you know. Um, I wasn't expecting it at all, and I kind of had to re-read it a few times, what actually happens, which, um, if, if you want me to reveal, is that the poor, the poor cousin is the one snoozing in the bed. Well, I say, if you want me to reveal, actually, the title pretty much gives that away from the off doesn't it but you probably forget about the title when you're when you're reading these things but um yeah it's it's awful you know they had that you know female friendship that kind of solidarity of being downtrodden by these absolute bloody weirdo men um (laughs) and yeah just the fact that I don't know what I'm what to make of her in this bit actually that she's kind of almost implicit by just witnessing this happen. But what else can she do? You know, she is downtrodden. There's no way she could sort of come out and reveal herself without taking Emily's place. But then there's something, I don't know, messed up in my in my head. It doesn't, it's not nicely resolved that she ends up just watching this kind of sacrifice, this accidental sacrifice of this poor, really kindly Emily happen before her and sort of doesn't do anything, but... It's very much of the genre, isn't it? I mean, you, you tend to not get a happy ending nor a sad ending as such. It's sort of, I always get kind of mixed feelings with stories like this. That there's no poetic justice. I mean, that the nicest character in the whole story gets whacked to save the yeah, main character. I mean, I didn't feel upbeat at the end of it. <laughs> well, the... Yes, you did. <laughs> you she deserved it. it. She, was, she, she was too nice. She deserved it. <laughs> well, the ending is incredibly downbeat. So the ending says, it describes Emily as the only being that had ever really loved me, my nearest and dearest friend, ever ready to sympathise, to counsel and to assist, the gayest, the gentlest, the warmest heart, the only creature on earth that cared for me. Her life had been the price of my deliverance, and I then uttered the wish, which no event of my long and sorrowful life had taught me to recall, that she had been spared, and that in her stead I were mouldering in the grave, forgotten and at rest. So she's got sort of survivor's guilt over what happened with poor Emily and wishes that she was dead instead. And also it offers no real resolution as to what happened with Sir Arthur and his dastardly son. It just says, essentially... In terms of Sir Arthur and his son who escaped the scene, you already know what happened to them. And you're kind of denied the retribution of seeing them strung up in a public square somewhere or seeing them get their comeuppance. It's just kind of alluded to, oh, well, you already know all about that, which is quite unusual for a, a mystery, to leave a mystery hanging, especially at at this time. Kind of typical of this style of Lefanu in which it's almost conversational and it's story as eked out through various documents 
as we've seen before in previous installments, where it's letters which very suddenly have a resolution or very suddenly just end without a resolution. And make reference to sort of the fictional world as if this is sort of knowledge that everybody reading this has. It's almost like a full biography, you know. It's referencing a a shared reality, which we, in truth, do not share. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because there's something unsatisfying about it, but sort of, I kind of like the way that we have to imagine where and when and how these guys come a cropper because we know that they're they're going to run out of luck at some point, like, you know. Mm. Um, mm. I, I actually do find it satisfying because I feel like the writer's kind of saying, well, you already know clever reader, don't you? Because you're well-read and you know about this and you know about that. And like, I think it did it earlier as well with the kind of the news story of the uncle about the kind of the, the initial mystery. The locked room. The yeah. locked room mystery. Mm. I quite like that, actually. It sort of makes me feel like, you know, in a theatre experience when someone will say, you know, you've been invited here because you already know about this or you're a very important guest. You're very researched in this and kind of as, as the audience in, say, an immersive event, you're like, oh, yes, I feel important. I've been given a role that is shifting me from my kind of natural reality so I actually don't mind the gaps I just like the kind of assumed sort of knowledge and worldliness that Le Fanu gives me I appreciate that it's like he's saying I'm not going to insult your intelligence by going into all that you you know about that yeah you know it's like you know mentioning World War II in a conversation like we don't need to go into that you know what happened there I suppose with gothic it's what's not said that sometimes is what's most interesting. And that's particularly true of ghost stories. But I think in this case, probably the case also with a sort of detective story. It's almost like where he lacks an economy of language because it's so loquacious and so florid in its description of events. He's decided I'm not going to be economical in that sense but I'm going to be economical in the sense of Mm. events and story and you know story beats I'm going to deny those and that is very clever and very ahead of its time um just I don't really care what happened to them two todgers anyway like I really want to know what happened to Lady Margaret because obviously being of the era you know she's not married will she have all this wealth is she just somewhere rotting, experiencing suicidal thought kind of for all of eternity? Is she ever able to find happiness? Does she get to enjoy her riches and her spoils or is she kind of carted off to someone else? Because, you know, more wondering about her. I don't really care about the men. I think from the extract that Craig just read out there, there's a sense of a lifelong standing trauma that stuck with her from all of these events that she's never got over and that had a huge impact upon her, her afterlife or her further life. She kind of suffers. She suffers for what she's able to stomach in those moments, doesn't she? Well, before we go, one thing worth noting, or just one thing uh, probably worth adding in, is that this story was later developed by Le Fanu in 1864, which is 26 years after its first publication. And he developed this story into a novel. And that novel is called Uncle Silas. And... In terms of recommendations, I would like to say that this is my favourite gothic novel of all time. A fantastic tale of terror uh, with a very formidable, a very vulnerable, but very formidable female character. And all of the characters we've spoken about in this episode fleshed out in different ways. In particular, the French maid who becomes a character known as Madame de la Rougerie, who is a work of art. 
and a piece of work all at the same time. Thank you very much to Izzy Major and Craig Sinclair of Frightwig. Thank you and sorry. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode three of the Gothic Banana podcast. In episode four, we will be presenting our own original adaptations of Sheridan Lefanu's The Murdered Cousin. This podcast is brought to you by Be Your Own Banana Theatre Company and Frightwig Theatre. Thank you and good night. Thank you.